you know, Greg is so modest. He introduced himself as an elder at our church. But did you know that he's also a rock star volunteer with our student ministries program? He's been hanging out with our boys for a number of years now, and they love him, and he does a phenomenal job. So thank you, Greg, so much for the reading of God's Word this morning. Um, it's so good to be here with you this morning. I'm excited about the word uh, that the Lord has laid on my heart, and I'm so, so happy for those of you that have come out and are here in person. Welcome. It's great to have people to actually talk to when we're preaching rather than just the tech guys. Um, they're just a little distracted doing their thing, so I appreciate having people that I can have your full attention. That's great. Um, if you've been tracking with us for a while, uh, we've been in our Believe series And there's been a bit of a switch, and I'm wondering if you've caught it. We've moved from talking about the top 10 beliefs of the Christian life to now switching in since the new year, talking about the top 10 practices of the Christian faith. And it's a subtle, but it's a significant switch. Um, It's so important that we understand that the the driving purposes of these actions or tasks or practices is not the practice in and of itself, like just going through the motions for the sake of going through the motions, but rather that engaging in these key practices, they help drive home these key beliefs uh, in a way that they move from just being in our head and in our minds to actually being something we sense in our hearts and we live out. So, so key. In a couple of minutes, we're going to jump in, and one of my favorite things to do during our Belief Series is that we do a Kahoot poll uh, where we get to see where you, our audience, is at. And so uh, Harry's probably going to have that number pop up. Um, You go to kahoot.it, and uh, I think you pick a nickname, and we're going to do a bit of a poll. We'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, If it's up there, if you're at home, uh, jump on, and we'll get started with that just in a moment. Where we're landing today is on the topic of Bible study. Now, this is particularly a topic I'm extremely excited about. Um, We started this year with, uh, Kurt was talking about worship, Steve taught last week on prayer, and I get the privilege of talking to you about Bible study. And it's so important that we remember that this whole talk about Bible study is meant to drive home the belief um, that we believe that God is has inspired the word of the Bible, that it's his words, and that it's useful for us to guide our beliefs and our actions. Um, The key question that sets this up, um, if you're grabbed our Believe Bibles there, I'm There's pages in here that are are just brilliant. There's a page in here that introduces kind of the topic, um, and and it introduces it with a key question, key idea, and key verse, all of which we'll look at today. But the key question actually really stopped me in my tracks because it says, how do I study God's word? And it got me excited because I started, I love this. Ever since my Bible school days and learning to jump into God's word, there has just been a passion in my soul. And so when I read that, I was like, great, we're going to look at lots of reasons on, on how to study the Bible, how to study God's word. So I was thinking, um, you know, we could look at a scripture verse mapping where you map out a verse. Uh, we could look at Bible journaling, which is another great way to engage God's word. I thought about, oh, we could talk about inductive Bible studies or topical Bible studies, like what the Believe series is. Or we could look at like chapter analysis, start breaking things down and getting deep in them. Or we could go super, super old school and do a little lecto divina, you know, like prayerful meditation on the Bible. I got super excited. And then I read the key idea. And it was this. And I got to admit, I was a little disappointed. This is the key idea. It says, I study the Bible to know God and his truths and to find direction for my life. 
I had to admit that when I read that, I was like, well, that's a little confusing to me because that sounds like a, a why, doesn't it? That sounds like why I read the Bible, to get to know God, his truth, um, and to find direction for my, that's why I would read the Bible. Um, that's, not, that's not necessarily how. Well, wouldn't you know it, God's spirit goes to work. And as I got the privilege of kind of studying and digging deep and doing lots of research and development for today's message, I realized the profound nature of that simple statement. And there's three components to it about to shape the how we should approach Scripture in our daily lives. I'm so excited to get to those three points with you. But before we do, if you've got your phones ready, why don't we jump in to Kahoot? Um, So if you're online or in the house, uh, it's kahoot.it, and I believe the pin is up there. Uh, Yes, it is. It's 653-7795. And I'll give you just a moment to jump in there. Uh, One of the things I was doing, I'll, I'll, uh, oh, it looks like we're getting ready to start. Here we go. Okay, so our very first question. I want to know, when it comes to studying the Bible, the easiest thing to do is find an excuse not to read it, right? And so I want to know, what is your favorite excuse that you use for not reading the Bible? Okay, you can be honest, because this is totally anonymous, um, but I want to kind of see where you're at. And so I've given you four choices there. Um, Maybe you're saying, uh, the Bible, where would I even find one of those? Well, we want to make sure we get you a Bible so you can be in touch with us at the church. Or another option is, life is busy, there just doesn't seem to be enough time. Or, I try to, but I get distracted. Or, I don't understand it, or it's boring, kind of composed into one. So if you want to uh, pick one of those selections that are up there on your screen, on your, on your cell phones, uh, that would be helpful. Um, want to remind you, yeah, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we would love to get one. So if you reach out to us via uh, social media or contacting the office, we would love to get you um, a Bible. And if I've put an option up there, if I put an option up there that isn't, isn't yours, feel free to throw that into the chat as, as our sermon's going. It'd be great to hear uh, your favorite excuse as to what keeps you from reading the Bible. Well, here we go. We've got our polls up here. I'm going to have to turn around here a little bit to see this. So we've got, uh, where would I find one? Four people? Awesome. If you don't have access to a Bible, I want you to get in touch with our church. We have Bibles. We would love to get to you one way or another. 34 people. Ah, it's the busyness of life that keeps, keeps you from getting into it. Equ- almost equally tied with this idea of getting distracted. Oh, love that there's not a lot that don't understand it or find it boring. Fantastic. That's great. Thank you for your responses. Now, our next question here, I just kind of want to see who's participating in this Kahoot. So I want you to, to give me an idea of what's your general age demographic for this survey, okay? So we've got our 0 to 18-year-olds, okay? So that's all the, all the people I get blessed to get to minister to, uh, all of our students here at Hillcrest. Um, the next stages is 19 to 14, Okay, now I realize 19-year-olds, you're feeling frustrated that I lumped you in with like 30 and 40-year-olds, but don't, don't, you've been an adult for a year now, okay, so just deal with it. Your 40s are coming, okay? I get to swallow mine this week, all right? My 40th this week, uh, I can't believe it's here. Um, 40 to 40, uh, 41 to 60 years old uh, or 60 plus in there? We just want to know kind of where our demographic is for, for this poll. I'm kind of interested to hear that. And I know those 60-year-olds are upset that 60-plus, that they're like, ah, I'm at the end of the scale. Don't worry about it. We'll get there. Here we go. Here's our poll. Awesome. We got lots of 0 to 13, 0 to 18. Is that great? Uh, We got a great spread. It looks like our most significant is in our 41 to 60 years old. That's fantastic. We got a a great spread here. 
That's wonderful. Okay, as we truck on now, we can keep that in mind as we answer these next questions. Here it is. Again, no judgment. Everyone has a hard time reading the Bible. But here we go. How often do you read the Bible? And here are your options. Pick the one that best describes you. One, I hardly ever read the Bible. So if you never read the Bible, that'd probably be your selection there. Uh, Two, I usually get to it at least once or twice a month. Uh, Three, typically a few times a week. Or number four, pretty much almost daily. Now this is an interesting question, one that actually, there's a lot of study that goes into it. I know Barna does a lot of work. They do something called, um, they work with the American Bible Society and they do uh, an evaluation every year, sort of the state of the Bible, and I realize it's in America. But believe it or not, there's been, there was a, a rush of Bible purchases when COVID first hit. A rush of, like on, on searches for the Bible and downloads and purchases, Bibles just soared when COVID first hit. And yet the, the report of the Bible shows that very few people continued on that trend of actually engaging with their Bible regularly. And I see our results are up there. So hardly ever read the Bible. We got nine, then we built, oh, look at this spectrum. This is really cool. Then we stepped to 16, usually get to it once or twice a month, um, typically a few times a week, and then pretty much almost daily. That is wonderful. 34 people. That is, that is great to hear. Um, in... Uh, so now we're going to switch to the next question. Uh, kind of want to take a look at your motivation. So the question is, my main vot- motivation for reading the Bible is, and pick one of these four answers. So it's the right thing to do, and I feel guilty when I don't, or I feel closer to God when I do, or it provides direction and answers to questions that I have, or it helps me connect and grow with other Christians. Those are your questions there. Now, interesting on this uh, Barna survey, um, guilt, um, feeling that you're supposed to, usually accounted for about 6%. The notion of wanting to feel closer to God was about uh, 38% of people. And then this idea of providing direction and that it answers questions you had uh, represented about 18 people of the sur- 18% of the survey. So there you go, between feeling closer to God and it providing direction and answers that you have, composed of over 50% of the motivation for people to jump into Scripture. So I'm really curious to see where you landed at on this one. I also think the last question here, this idea of it helps me connect and grow with other Christians, I think it's the biggest opportunity we have before us in Bible engagement. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that today. So here's our results. Um, the right thing to do, so there's eight people that feeling guilty. Uh, closer to God, awesome, up there at 34 uh, people. Uh, 28 then is the next question where we're providing direction and answers to life. And then six, that it helps me connect with other Christians. Awesome. Good to know where you guys are at. Here we go. Our last one of our poll here, the last question is simply this. One thing that would help me study the Bible more is if I had more time. Two, if I could understand it better. Three, if I had someone to study it with. Or four, if I could see it making a difference. Those are your options. Pick one that applies to you. Again, if you've got a response to that, that you're like, oh, I didn't get to it, feel free to jump over to the Facebook chat or YouTube chat and throw it in there. We'd really love to hear um, what it is that you feel would help you study the Bible more. Um, we'll just wait, give it a moment here for our results to get, come in. 
I was uh, amazed with the Barna study also. Um, it talks about like preferred, um, preferred format of the Bible. And you can see right from elderly people where it's just uh, 100% paper copy Bible. And the graph just slants down from there that the younger you get, the more that they prefer uh, a, digital, a digital resource. It was really interesting to see. Uh, here we go. We've got our results here. So if I had more time, oh, these are really... Close, actually, all these. If I had more time uh, at 20, if I could understand it better, is at 14. If I had someone to study it with, 23. That's really neat, interesting that that's the highest one. And then 16, if I could see it making a difference. I'm sure if we had all four of those, it would simplify Bible engagement for us. Hey, thank you so much for participating in our Kahoot uh, poll. We'll, uh, we'll get on here with, uh, with the sermon. So back to this idea of the key idea. One of the things I really love about the key idea of the topic Bible study is that it represents today's sermon in a nutshell. And it's simply this. I study the Bible to know God and his truth and to find direction for my daily life. It was neat how, uh, in preparation, I noticed that there's really three strong components that make up this statement. There's one that's relational, that we study the Bible to get to know God. There's a relational component there. That's how we should study the Bible. The next one is there's a foundational element there where I study the Bible to know his truth, to know God's truth. And then lastly, there's one that I I would describe at this time as being practical, that it has uh, advice to give or direction to offer for your daily life. And so we should study the Bible and look at the Bible sort of being motivated or moved by that. And we're going, to explain, we're going to explore all three of these kind of in story. So I've picked out sort of three stories from the Bible that I think sort of highlight each of these, and we're going to jump in and look at it. The very first one is Joshua 1, 1 to 9, uh, the verses that Greg had read. But before we jump into God's word, let's just take a moment to pray. Uh, Jesus, we thank you so much that you're here with us, that you love us, that you care for us, Lord, and that you want to reveal yourself to us. I thank you in particular for the Holy Spirit that illuminates your word to us and teaches us. Would you be with us here now as we turn to your word? We ask this in Jesus' name. Relational. Joshua 1, 1 1-9. Now, the passage that Greg read is such a key portion of scripture. Something that we don't want to overlook is that there's a switching of the era in that passage of scripture. It's the sixth book of the Bible. So Moses, who is a key figure in Israelite history, right? He's the guy who who saw the burning bush, who led the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt. He was up on the mountain with God, meeting with God face to face. He received God's revelation and wrote it down into a written text for the Israelite nation. He uh, got received all the instruction on the, the sacrificial system and the law. So Moses was a huge, huge character. Joshua was his aide. And so the story that we find ourselves at the beginning of Joshua is where uh, Moses has died, and it's now over to Joshua to take over. Joshua has ridiculously huge boots to fill. Moses was so key, so influential, Joshua's got to try and, now his job is to lead these people into the promised land. 
Okay? And so as we turn to those, uh, it's really significant the way that the book of Joshua starts off, that it very much is starting us off on a new era because Moses is gone and now Joshua becomes the key focus. Okay? And so here we are. It's really neat that in the first part, verses 1 to 4, um, it, it addresses this notion of, of heading into the land. And it's addressed to Joshua and, and the Israelite people, saying, like, all y'all are going to inherit this promise, and I'm going to be with you wherever you go. And then we get down to verses 5 and 6. And this is very important because the language switches, and it's very personal. The yous in it aren't referring to all y'all in terms of the whole Israelite nation. The you in this passage is talking to Joshua specifically. So we get to jump in, and here in verse 5, it simply says that no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Can you imagine hearing the God of the universe speak those words to you? How reaffirming would that be? How encouraging would that be to know that the presence of God was going to be with me just like he was with my predecessor? Not only that, but there's this this sense of commitment on God's part that is able to sustain me even when I get things wrong. There's this notion of, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. The kind of relationship promise is significant. And there's a permanence because it's God's commitment to Joshua. Wow. Wow. And then he goes on to say in verse 6, Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. (laughs) Now God is introducing the task that lies before Joshua. He is to lead the people. Think about it. If the leader is weak and faint of heart and unresolute in the plan, what can the expectation be of those that you are leading? It's really important that Joshua buys in, has confidence in the Lord, and knows the role of what God is asking him to do. This is his job assignment. This is the task uh, to lead them into the promised land. However, this promised land wasn't just an open door, empty, and they could just walk in. There was other people living there, other people who called that land home. There's bound to be conflict. Confrontation was inevitable. And so you're almost asking yourself, uh, is this where God gives Joshua the military strategy? Like, how is it that they're going to succeed, right? God said he'd be with them. Then he gave him uh, the task that was ahead of him. So now what's the strategy? What's the strategy for taking this land? Very interesting. Here it is. Verse 7. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. That doesn't sound like much of a military strategy to me. How about to you? Or is it? We do that sometimes. We prefer to keep kind of God's word on the peripheral. Did you catch that? Do not turn to the left or to the right. This notion that the law of the Lord was meant to stay central to everything they were setting out to do. That you wouldn't turn to the left or the right and keep it in the peripheral, but it would remain center. Verse 8, it goes on to say, Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. 
We get a sense of what it looks like, that we're always to be thinking about it, meditating on it, and, and talking about it. Now, just a word on this idea about prosperous and successful. There's some streams of Christianity that look at this, that God, if you're obedient to God's word and you're in it, everything will be successful for you. Your business, your family life, everything, that it's just always an upward trend. And I don't, I don't really subscribe to that belief. And, and actually, the text, if you look into it, it doesn't suggest that either. These two words that are used to prosper and be successful, in fact, they're almost never used in the Old Testament referring to financial gain. Almost never. So what it is driving at is this idea of succeeding in life's proper endeavors. In the context, it's talking about pursuing holiness, obedience, i.e. succeeding in the pursuit of God and walking out his will for your life. Verse 9 picks it up and says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. It almost seems that the, the focus on the word of God as the military plan that God gives Joshua here is that as you speak it, meditate it, obey what it says, that God will be with you. Or maybe it's the other way around, that as you speak it, as you meditate on it, as you obey it, you realize just how much God is already with you. That you're brought back to that promise. The book of the law, the beginning of the Bible, was paramount. The role it was to play in the life of the nation was that it was to be central to their community life and their personal lives. I study the Bible to know God. How we do it is that it's relational. So we should approach it as such. That when we encounter the scriptures, we got to understand that it's God's heart, God's words for us. For the purpose of drawing us closer to him. Ha! I don't know, when I realize that, I feel somewhat ashamed because I realize how much of my approach to the Bible is to understand and to know. And that can distract from the importance of the how we approach the Bible is to connect with the living God. It's what God promised to Joshua. And I can't help but think that this is a pertinent word for us too. As COVID has changed our entire way of understanding life and relating to people and and participating as a community, we too were on a new era, staring down something totally different, just like Joshua, standing at the edge of the promised land going, oh my goodness, Moses is gone now, it's up to me, how am I going to do this? And God turns him back to his word saying, you'll find it in there. So too for us that navigating this new era that we're all living in, God's word has something to offer us on that endeavor. So now fast forward, that's the relational component. We're going to take a look at something a little bit more practical, okay? This idea of studying the Bible to find daily direction for my life. And we're going to pick it up in 2 Kings 22. And I'm going to do my best to paraphrase this story and not spend too much time on it because it's a great story. So when you know it, the Israelites take over the promised land. They get in there, God shows up, he helps them. There's a whole bunch of books of the Bible that are written that tell these stories. They get in there and they settle themselves as a nation under God. Eventually, they start asking God for a king, that they wanted to be more like the other nations, and so God provided a king. And at first, we hear the great stories of like King David, 
Like, he just rocked it. It was amazing. Man after God's own heart. Successful. It was good for the nation of Israel. And then, oh, there's lots of, bio, lots of stories in the Bible where things just went downhill. There was evil king after evil king that didn't worship God, that didn't submit to him. And like Israel as a nation just began to descend. And it split into two different chunks and then nations were taking over uh, other parts of it and it was just, just a disaster by all accounts. But in there, in this passage, there's a story of a king where his experience was different. And it stands out amongst this history of evil kings. In chapter 22, it begins with Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Crazy. Eight, I have an eight-year-old that I think would love to be king of, of our home, right? Just ambitious. But think about that. Having all the power of kingship at eight years old and being surrounded and, and having a long line of corrupt kings ahead of you, I don't know if Josiah really had much of a chance. And yet the Bible records this as a summary of his life in verse 2. Don't miss it. It says, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David, not turning aside, hear this, not turning aside from the right or the left. I got giddy in my office when I discovered this chunk of scripture that repeated that phrase of how well it tied to the first. You've got, I have to point that out to you. It's just so amazing. So he's young, he's impressionable. He's a long line of bad kings. So what happens to Josiah? Well, very interestingly enough, um, they're doing some work on the temple and renovating, doing some stuff, and a priest there finds a book of the law. They'd never seen one before. There had been so many evil kings that the word of the Lord had, had kind of disappeared. It was super rare. They didn't have written copies of it, but they find one in the temple. And what they do is they, he reads it to Josiah. And this is a moment. He's 26 years old now. Something happens in Josiah's heart. It changes him. He tears his robes in repentance and turns his heart back to God. This incredible kind of repentant story. It's amazing. It's worth checking out. So he's there. He's had this incredible life change because of the reading of the word of God. And get this, and we'll read through this in, in chapter 23, 1 to 3. This gives us a sense of the flow of it. It says, Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments statues and decrees with all of his heart and all of his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. So there's this amazing repentant moment where the whole world turns around. Here's the key to this story. Josiah doesn't stop there. It's not just heart change. You know what he does? All of 23 goes on to describe he cleans house. Israel had wandered. They'd set up all other kinds of gods, pagan temples, uh, child sacrifice, like the worst of the worst. In the temple itself, there was things erected to other gods. And Josiah takes the words of the law and he obeys them. He begins to clean house. And it's actually kind of like you read it and it's almost embarrassing at how far the Israelite nation had fallen away from the one true God. But there's something interesting about this story that it happened to be when Josiah got his hands on the word of the Lord 
And it did something in his heart that it changed his behavior. And he stands out amongst the kings of Israel because of his commitment to what God had led him to do. We get the sense that the word of God is meant to be very practical for our lives, giving us daily uh, encouragement, daily direction on leading us on how we ought to live. But I'd like to challenge you that I don't want to just stop with this notion of practical because I think it's doing the Bible a disservice when we treat it like just a practical book to come and glean wisdom that maybe makes sense to me or, or pick and choose the stuff that we want to obey. That doesn't seem right. So I would switch, I would amend my notes and I would say rather than practical, let's call it vocational. Vocation, this idea that we have a calling a, a way to live in which God wants to give us instruction and draw us into that. Something that's meant to be the focus of our entire lives. Something that's meant to be central to our lives. Vocation, something that we're also perfectly suited to do. God has perfectly wired you, perfectly placed you in the life he has given you to be successful in your vocation of pursuing him and following him. This is good news. It's more than just practical. It's Christ in you for the life of the world. Amazing. I study the Bible to find direction for my daily life. Next, we move on to, we move on to this idea of foundational. And for this, I want to, I wanna, this is the, the last chunk that we'll look at. Um, it's in Luke. We're going to look at Luke uh, 6, 46 to 49. How do we study the Bible? To know the truth. Truth. God's foundational underpinnings of all reality. His word is true. Truthful. Now, this is a really, really, I could geek out on this for a while. This is a super cool passage of scripture. It shows up both in Matthew and in Luke. Uh, they're Jesus' words, so we want to make, take particular attention to that. But both of these, this passage of Scripture in Matthew ends up at the end of the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount. Jesus' is like famous sermon, right? It like stretches over two chapters, and it's the last thing that Jesus says at the end of his Sermon on the Mount. It's awesome. Luke, also a little bit shorter sermon, and this sermon is known as the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, but again, this passage of Scripture... Jesus' words ends up as the last thing he says to those people that he was teaching that day. Let's jump in. Let's see what it says. Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. 48. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid, a, laid the foundation on rock. When the flood came, the torrent struck the house, that, but it could not shake it because it was well built. But the man who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and, it dis, and its destruction was complete. So both guys, both building a house, or I would suggest building a life. When you consider a house, what do you look at? 
As you're driving around the neighborhoods, admiring homes here in Moose Jaw or wherever you live, what is it that you take notice of? In our culture, um, uh, having houses become, we're very house savvy actually. A, a home has become something of a, of a status symbol here in North America. But what do you notice first? Do you notice windows? Do you notice the entranceway? Uh, how tall it is? Do you notice the siding? Is it one story, two story? But the truth is, uh, you know, you're not, you're not ever driving around uh, with your partner. I'd be driving around with Jenna, and we're looking at houses, and this never happens. I, w- I would not be driving around to communities looking and being like, oh, honey, look over there. Do you, do you see that? Look at that beautiful two-story colonial house with the, with the wraparound veranda and the amazing entranceway and look at those decked out trimmed windows. Isn't that phenomenal? And she looks at me and says, she's like, what, that house over there? You know, that one with the slab-on grade foundation? Ha, come on, slab-on grade in this climate? That house will never sit level. Said no woman ever. No conversation has ever gone over like that. Because when we look at a house, we don't look at the foundation. We don't admire the foundation. We look at the house. And yet, if we're paying attention to what Jesus is saying here, he's saying the most important thing, as it is in home building, is to have a secure, solid foundation. He's also saying in your life that your life, the life that you are building with the raw material that God has given you, what are you building it on? And Jesus says it's important that you get it built on the right foundation. Elsewhere in the Bible, it talks about how Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. This reality that no life stands if it isn't built on the foundation. And that's the heart of Jesus' words. Jesus, who is God's word in the flesh, so as we're talking about how to, uh, how to study God's Bible, it's important to realize that his word came as flesh in the person of Christ. And Jesus is saying the absolute value of going through the work to build it on something fall, solid. And he's saying the hard work is practice. Practice is hard work. Doing what the Bible says, being obedient, can be hard work. It feels a lot like digging. No one loves digging. It's tiresome, unrewarding work, right? And yet in the vision of what Jesus is putting out here, he shows us that there's a man who digs down deep. And I can't help but that we should take that approach with the word of God as well, that as we're reading it, we're not just content to uh, read it and it draws me close to God, uh, read it and get some sort of practical a step to, to, to implement on a way to live, but that we should read it in such a way that we want the truth to penetrate our hearts. That we read it in such a way that we want to dig down, dig, dig past all of our thoughts, dig past all of our distractions, dig past all of our confusion, and look for the foundation, the thing that which is secure on which to build. That is Christ. In Proverbs 2, 3 to 5, it says this. It says, Indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. I study the Bible to know the truth. 
and to build my life on the truth. The key verse for uh, this point of where we're at in the Bible study or studying the Bible is this. It comes from Hebrews 4.12. It's amazing. It says this. It says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Get this. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Isn't it interesting that when we actually get right down to studying the Bible, to reading it, we realize it's not so much about us reading it, but it reading us. That it's living and active. And it challenges our thoughts, it challenges our attitudes to bring us into alignment with God's truth. Amazing. So often we skip out on that dialogue We don't like to dig. We don't like to wrestle. And yet it's so rewarding, the effort invested to allow God's word to challenge us and encourage us to dig down deep. Now I'm almost pretty much wrapped up here, but there's just a couple couple of last thoughts I want to leave with you. This challenge can be, it can be challenging to study the Bible. But there's really good news. And there's two things I'd like to suggest to you. The first thing is, is that if you're a Christian, God has given you his spirit. The spiritual presence of Christ resides in every believer. The Bible calls it the spirit of truth. And Jesus encouraged his disciples and said, hey, when you're reading, when you're studying, he said, don't worry about what you're going to say. Don't worry about, you know, what you're going to say at the time because the spirit of truth will be with you and he will teach you He will give you the words to speak. So this is good news. We don't have to be fearful of jumping in the Bible and not understanding it or being overwhelmed. We should be more sensitive to what the Spirit is doing inside us as we read. That he'll guide you into truth. He'll guide you to those words that God wants you to hear, needs you to hear for that day. Awesome. Second thing. First thing, we got the Holy Spirit. Second thing. Did you know you're not alone? Christians everywhere are leaning in to study the Bible, sensing that call, sensing that draw. And sometimes we forget that in a a world where reading the Bible has become a solo sport, and the only time we encounter it in communion is, or community is, is maybe during a sermon. And yet, if it's relational, if it's vocational, if it's foundational, it should show up in almost every spectrum of our life. And so I would encourage you, one of the greatest areas to grow in scripture reading and Bible study is to do it with somebody else, with your family, with a friend. One of the things we've uh, we've been encouraging our senior high students, so that's our grades 9 to 12, uh, JJ and I have been leaning into this for a while and praying through it, and we feel 2021 is a a year where we really want to make student ministries about this, and we call it You and Two. It's simply this. It's this idea where our students would pick a couple of their friends and they would simply commit to meeting together, reading God's word, praying, and discussing it and doing what it says. That simple. And we're challenging our students. It's not something we're chasing them down or we're forcing them to do. We want to offer the invitation saying, hey, if you just implement, if you're having a hard time reading scripture, if you're having a hard time being faithful to Bible reading, why not do it with a couple of your friends? 
Even if you pick people that aren't Christians, there's a lot, it's amazing how many non-Christians, if you go, hey, you know, you've probably heard a lot about the Bible. Would you like to actually sit down and read and discuss, you know, the gospel of Mark? People are willing to do that. There's an interest there. And so we're challenging our students to find a couple of friends where once a week or a couple times a week, you're getting together, be it Zoom or at school or whatever it is, to sit down and read God's word and allow it to shape your life. And our hope, our hope is that it will normalize for these students talking about scripture and talking about God with their friends. And that it'll be the most natural thing to invite other people into this conversation, into this study that they're having. So, in wrapping up and drawing this to a, to a close, so our why we study the Bible also becomes our how we approach it. We study the Bible with a posture to know God. That is, to grow in intimacy of relationship and fellowship with our Heavenly Father. The next thing is, is to know His truth, to know God's truth. And that means to to be willing to dig down deep to discern its meaning and to allow it to shape us. And also this idea of vocation, that we, to find direction for our daily lives, that is, direction that we're going to obey because it's more than practical, it's vocational, it's what God is calling us to. If we study the Bible like this, then it's going to be really difficult for anything else to keep us from encountering God's word on a weekly, on a day-to-day basis. Because we'll be hungry for intimacy with God. We'll desire direction for our life. And we'll know that the stuff that we're reading is the right foundation. It's Christ as the foundation on which to build our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your call. Thank you for your call in the church to not be content with buildings, but to be uh, eager and ambitious to model and to reflect you to a world that so desperately needs it. And Jesus, we can't do it without you. You are our foundation. You are the way. uh, You are the truth and you are the life. So Jesus, I ask that by your spirit, uh, the church in Musha, our friends that attend Hillcrest, Lord God, that you would infuse them with your spirit and give them courage, Lord God, to, to be in your word daily, Lord God. And I pray too, God, that we would see it as our mission field to take what we read, to take what we learn, and to share it with others, Lord. Thank you that you... Uh, You are the one leading us on this new era that we face in this new season. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for uh, joining us online and in-house today. Uh, It's been a real pleasure to get to share God's word with you. God bless.